This is my first time behind the new pulpit. This thing's massive. I feel like Captain Kirk or something, you know, from Star Trek? Photons or something. It's so good to see you. I, I want to say a quick word again about the class that's starting right now. Actually, you can't leave. Okay, you can't leave to go to it. You have to wait till next week. But at 1045, we've started a brand new thing called Continuing the Conversation. I know Pastor Faye said a word about it, but I want to say another word about it because, you know, as preachers, we spend a ton of time working on sermons. And y'all pray for our spouses because they have to deal with us the whole week. We're working on it, right? And asking them all sorts of questions. But it's always, I've always wondered, like, what happens after you hear the sermon? You know, you sort of go on about your business, go to Moe's, and you forget all about it or whatever it is. Um, but our hope is that we're sharing words because we feel like this is what God wants us to say to you, uh, which is a crazy thing in and of itself. But our hope is that these words are, are things that stay with you, that, that make you think about your life differently or what's important. And, and I feel like we could do a really better job of creating some places for us to talk about that, right? To discuss how this should be applied to our lives. Because if that's not happening, then what's the point, right? I'm just sort of wasting your time. Um, so on Sunday mornings at 1045, we're going to have facilitators. So some will be people from on staff. Others will be folks from the congregation who will essentially take clips from the previous week's sermons. They're online, by the way. You can watch them whenever you want. But we'll take some clips from the previous sermons, show them, and we'll have some discussion about how we should be applying this stuff to our lives. All right, so it's 1045 up in the chapel. For those of you who have been looking for a place to sort of jump in just to get to know some people and, and kind of get more involved here at the church, that's a great first step. All right, I'll be the one leading the conversation next Sunday morning, 1045. We'll have some coffee up there for you, whatever else you need. All right, hopefully I'll see you there. Now, several years ago, I think it was two years ago, actually, I, I survived my very first Mom's Day Out. Have you heard of these things, by the way? This is where a group of moms get together and they decide that, that they're going to spend an entire day outside of the house and they, without the kids. And so they're going to leave the kids at home with the dads by themselves, all alone for an entire day. Right? This is something that many moms manage to do every single day. However, I got to be honest, I was looking forward to this day with a good bit of dread. Right? Not the idea of like spending time with my kids. That's fun. It's exhausting, but it's a whole lot of fun. Here's what I was worried about. I was worried about the responsibility piece. Right? I, I didn't want anybody to get lost or seriously injured while mom was away. So the plan was simple. Here's my plan. We're staying home all day. Lock the doors. We're going to barricade ourselves in the house we're going to hold down the fort, and we're going to wait it out until mom gets home. That was my plan, all right? Now, my wife had organized this day out with several other moms whose husbands were on staff with me at the church where I served at. This is why, why we were living in Ohio, all right? So most of these were, um, were spouses of folks who were on staff. And they tried really hard to make this as easy as possible on us, so they scheduled this excursion for Sunday, which meant that by the time the dads picked the kids up after worship from children's ministry, it was really more like an afternoon out, right, instead of a whole day. Wasn't that nice of them? And so I remember running into one of my friend, James Keith, we call him JK, he was the worship pastor at the church, had four kids of his own. I ran into him picking up our kids in the children's ministry, and we both, you know, on our way out of church, had diaper bags strapped to us, kids everywhere, like a couple of pack mules, you know, on our way out. And I remember when it was time for us to go our separate ways, we both kind of looked at each other like, I'll pray for you, you pray for me, right? And so I get everybody into the van, my minivan, or uh, my urban assault vehicle, as I like to refer to it. 
as, and so everybody's in the van. I'm about ready to leave, to go home, to, to, you know, bunker down. And then all of a sudden, JK pulls up next to me in his minivan, rolls his window down, looks at me and says, you want to go to lunch? I had like two immediate thoughts. First one was, that's a horrible idea. Just an awful idea. Stick to the plan. Nobody gets hurt, right? Then a second thought, which has gotten me into a whole lot of trouble throughout my life, popped in my head, and it goes like this. Why not, right? It's like, you know, as, as small and as brainless of a thought as that is, it tends to win out in my life whenever I'm like in an internal debate with myself. Why not? And so just imagine two dads, six kids under the age of six, going out to lunch on a Sunday afternoon. Ugh. And we get into the restaurant. It's normally one of those restaurants everybody goes to, you know, right after church or whatever. And it's completely empty, which is really weird. Makes me think they saw us coming in the front door, and so they all ran out the back door, right? We ended up spending that entire day out of the house. And it was a blast. In fact, we finished the day at a place a lot like Frankie's Fun Park. You ever been there? We finished it. We, we ended up there, essentially, at 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday. We shut that place down, right? And it, it was a blast. I'm so proud to admit that nobody was hurt, lost, or seriously injured. We did forget to feed them dinner, but that's just, you know, nothing a couple late-night Pop-Tarts can't take care of, right? Uh, here's what I'll say about that, that, that day. You know, as, as crazy as it was and as exhausting as it was, it was a blast. I mean, it was, it was so much fun, right? I mean, here, here's the bottom line. Life is just better shared. Wouldn't you agree? It's better shared, as crazy as it can be, as messy as it can be, it's way better together. I mean, I could have spent the entire day in the house. It would have been safer, right? But I would have missed out on a really great day. Now, we're in the midst of this series called All In, where we are challenging ourselves with moving past just being believers and taking Jesus up on his invitation to actually be disciples. Right? Because Jesus' invitation isn't to just simply believe in him, but it's to what? It's to follow him. It's to be about the things he's about. It's to pattern our life after who he is and what God has done in and through him. And we've been working with this definition of a disciple that we've developed. And the definition goes like this. A disciple is a student of Jesus, learning from him how to live their whole lives. Y'all say whole lives, whole lives, whole lives under the reign and the rule of God. That's what a disciple is. And that whole life part is really important. Right, because it's not just about an hour and some change on a Sunday morning before we go to lunch. Right, it's more than that. It's our entire life. Jesus wants our entire life. And we understand that to consist of four major areas. Who we are, how we live, who we're with, and what we do. Who we are, that's our identity. Man, if you have said yes to Jesus Christ, if you've embraced that saving love for yourself, scriptures tell us your identity has changed. Even if you don't feel like it, you are what the scriptures call a new creation. God has done something miraculous. You are different than you were before, right? And so a, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus is somebody who is growing in an understanding and a confidence and who they actually are in Christ. That new identity is becoming more and more real in their life, which has everything to do within how we live. How we live is all about making the truth of the gospel a reality in our life through the practice of rhythms and disciplines. This is why we read the scriptures. This is why we spend time in prayer, not just because we're obligated to, 
Because it's how we take the truth of everything God has accomplished in Jesus Christ and make it real in our lives. I mean, for a lot of us in this room, you know what? We're forgiven people. We don't really live like it, though. We still allow things like guilt and condemnation, right, to to ruin our day, (laughs) to run our life. So one of the reasons why we enter into some of these practices and disciplines is to work through that. So the truth of what God has done in Jesus Christ becomes real. We actually begin to live like forgiven people. Are you with me? This also has everything to do, though, with who we're with. It's like I said earlier, the bottom line is, man, life is better shared. We cannot do this by ourselves. We can't. But the full life of God meets us in a very real way as we move closer together and enter into intentional community. That's where we're going to park this morning. I want us to discuss the role that our shared life with one another, the role that plays in our life with God, and particularly in our commitment to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But before we go any further, let's just pause for a moment of prayer. God, we recognize the gift of today, the gift of this moment. I pray for all of us in this room, particularly the ones who maybe don't wanna be here, or at least they don't wanna hear a message about this. I pray, Lord, that your spirit moves, you open us up, you soften us. Give us the courage and the humility to hear from you this morning. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. But in all that you do, make us a little bit more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. I would love for you to open your Bibles up uh, to Matthew 7. If you don't bring your Bibles to church, I'd love for you to bring your Bibles to church. If you want to use the Bible, the Bible in your pew, go for it. It's on page 685. I love to hear the sound of Bible pages turning on Sunday morning, 685 if you want to turn there. But first, a quick word about the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is actually known as the Gospel of the Church, the Gospel of the Church, for several reasons. The most obvious one is that out of all the four Gospels, Matthew is the only one to actually use the word church. It's the only Gospel the word church shows up in. But even more than that, one of the, the main intentions of the author is to help the early church, the original audience, which would have been the early church, but also us now, now today, to help us understand our identity in light of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, particularly when it comes to our relationships with one another, how we are meant to live with one another. That's why throughout Matthew, you find all of these really profound teachings. In fact, there are five major teachings in the book of Matthew. And, and so much of it, almost all of it has to do with how you and I interact with each other, with our relationships. This is where Jesus talks about things like, and you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Right? I tell you to love your enemies. What is that about? It's about this, right? He tells us about turning the other cheek, forgiving one another. You find all these profound teachings over and over again, all throughout the gospel of Matthew. And so as you read through it, what becomes very clear is that Jesus places a high priority high priority on our life together. In fact, in chapter five, two chapters before the one that we're gonna be in today, listen to what Jesus says. These are some sharp words. Jesus says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, so this person, whoever they are, they're in Jerusalem, they're at the temple. That's where the altar was. So you, you didn't have to live in Jerusalem. You may, maybe you've traveled miles, right? You've traveled really, a really long distance to come to the temple in Jerusalem to offer your gift to God. This is worship, all right? So they're in the midst of worship. 
And Jesus says to them, if you're there offering your gift to the altar and you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave your gift there at the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come and offer your gift. Whoa. That'd be a really bold thing for Jesus to say, particularly in a culture where their entire life as a country, as a people, centered around what happened at that altar, what happened at, their tem- at that temple. That was the core of life for them. And what Jesus is showing is he's pointing out to us the primacy of our relationships with each other. The primacy of that. The fact that in God's economy, our relationships with one another actually take priority over our worship. Whoa. That's some powerful stuff. I mean, it's almost like Jesus saying this to us. And if we took this literally, half of you probably wouldn't be here this morning. But if Jesus said, if you're on your way to church Sunday morning, and you're going to drive there in silence because there's some sort of unresolved issue or conflict, don't even bother going to church. Like I said, if half of us took them seriously, most of us wouldn't be here right now. Am I right? Sunday morning can be one of the most stressful days of the week. Who's with me on that? Some reason, on the way to church, everybody gets into it, right? What Jesus is saying, though, is in God's economy, this is the primacy of relationships. Our relationships with one another take priority, precedent, even over our worship. Whoa. That's pretty wild, isn't it? So in light of that, let's take all this back to Matthew chapter 7. Let's, I'm going to reread that passage to you, right? Maybe through a different lens to see if anything jumps out at you. Chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son or your daughter asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if they ask for a fish, we'll give them a snake. If you then, though you were evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now, some of you may be like, why are we looking at this passage on a sermon on relationships? I mean, isn't this a passage really about our prayer life? It's kind of how I've always read it that Jesus is talking about our confidence and our willingness to ask God for what we need, right? That's how I've always read it. But I've come across some other insights. I've read it in a bit of a different angle, and I've discovered some things that I think there's way more going on in this passage than that. I don't want us to miss it. But in order to see it, we have to, we have to read this passage really in light of its context. You know what context is? Essentially, it's the larger conversation that a verse or a passage is a part of. If you look down at your Bible, there are chapter headings and verses. You see those there? Those weren't always there. They were added much later. And sometimes they're not very helpful. In fact, they can be misleading. Because what we'll do is we'll like pull a verse or a passage out of its context and kind of just read it by itself. And so we lose its connection with the bigger conversation going on. Right? So this passage is actually a part of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's like Jesus' greatest hits. Right? It's the greatest sermon ever preached. And we have to understand is that Jesus isn't just grabbing random things out of the air to talk about. Well, we'll talk about this, and we'll talk about that. How about, no, there's actually a groove to this thing. There's a movement to it. It's got a flow. And so really to understand this passage, we need to take a step back and kind of look at the overall flow of the entire sermon. It begins in chapter five with the Beatitudes. There are these announcements, these declarations of God's love and acceptance for us despite our circumstances. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. It's good news, right? 
And he goes on to elaborate more on, on what this God is like. And he, he says a word to the disciples about their role as the light of the world, the salt of the earth. But in chapter six, he begins to really focus in on what does it look like to have a right relationship with God? I mean, to fully entrust ourselves to God's goodness and God's care. So he talks about a life free of worry and anxiety. You know a bit about that? This is that, that chapter where he's pointing our attention to the birds in the air, to the flowers of the field, right? There's evidence that surrounds us all the time about how good God is. So the picture then is, again, of, of somebody who has fully entrusted their life to the goodness of God. It's this non-anxious presence with God. Right? And then from there, after talking about what does it look like to live rightly this way between ourselves and God, Jesus then begins to turn the corner in chapter 7, and he starts talking about our relationships this way, particularly how they should not look. Right? So if this is true over here, if we have this, this beautiful connection with God, right? we fully entrusted ourselves to God, this is how our relationships with one another shouldn't look then. And he starts by saying, don't judge each other. Right? Judging one another is about, is about our attempt to like manipulate and control people with things like fear, guilt, and shame. That's what judging is all about. Trying to control folks. Then he even goes on to say, it's sort of that interesting line. He says, don't throw your pearls to the swine or to the pigs. I wish we had more time to really unpack that because it's really fascinating. But he's essentially talking about, you know, the danger of sharing what's sacred, what's precious to us with people who aren't ready for it, right? But at the same time, Jesus is talking about not only our tendency to try to manipulate and control with judgment, with guilt and shame, bad things, but he's also talking about how we try and control and manipulate with good things too. It's like, you, you know those people in your life that like try to push gifts on you? You know what I'm talking about? Like maybe it's an in-law. Maybe. Just saying. There's somebody in your life, they do good, they do nice things for you, right? Like a birthday, a birthday's coming up, they buy more presents than everybody else. You know what I'm talking about? They do all these really nice things for you, but it feels like there's strings attached. Like it's some sort of attempt to kind of get you in your back pocket. You know, who knows what I'm talking about? I know I'm not the only one who knows a thing or two about this, right? This is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, don't do that. Don't try and control each other and manipulate each other with bad things and don't try to do it with good things either. If you've got this non-anxious connection with God, stop doing this stuff. So think about the flow, right? It begins by talking about our relationship with God and how that looks. And then he begins to discuss how then it shouldn't look between, the, between us. So it leaves me asking, what's next? How should it look then? If we fully entrusted ourselves to God, then how should our relationships look with one another? It's in this context where Jesus says, Ask, seek, and knock. And essentially, Jesus is inviting us into the type of community, the type of relationships where we can ask, seek, and knock, where we can actually lean on one another to have and to be and to do way more than we ever could on our own. This is not just a passage about our prayer life. In fact, here's what's interesting. The word prayer never even shows up in the passage. And listen to how it ends. Did you catch that? Listen to how the passage ends. In all of this, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. It's a picture of, of what a community of people look like when, when sort of their posture is this posture of interdependence, where they can actually receive from one another. Is anybody getting uncomfortable in here? I'm kind of getting uncomfortable, and I've already preached this thing twice. Because here's what I would do. I would argue that this sort of posture in our relationships— 
this posture of interdependence, it's really hard for us. It is hard. I mean, the type of vulnerability and humility it takes to receive this from each other doesn't come very naturally, does it? In fact, I would say it's very counterintuitive. I'd argue that in our part of the world, and I'd say even more so in our community, where so many of us have more than we need, often the harder thing isn't giving somebody something we need, it's receiving it from other people. Am I right? There's a whole lot of humility involved in that. It's not an easy thing to do. In fact, some of you might be familiar with this story. I shared it uh, during One Life, but I think it's worth sharing again. But in our first house in Ohio, our sink, our kitchen sink, developed this small leak. And it was on the side where the, di- where the garbage disposal is. So you kind of notice it from the smell first, right? And I don't know anything about plumbing. At the same time, the, the plumbing job at this house, it looked like spaghetti noodles. I mean, there's pipes going everywhere. I had no idea what to do. And so instead, I got a glass jar, and I put it underneath the leak, and I collected the water that way. And I said, honey, what I say to her? I'll get around to it, right? Well, at least once or twice a week, the water would fill up. And you would notice because of the smell. I mean, it was awful. Awful. I was talking about like Porta John awful, okay? It smelled gross. And so what would I do? I would just open up, go underneath the sink, grab the jar, dump out the water, and put it right back where it was before, right? I kept telling my wife, what do we say? I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. Well, after about a year of this, I kid you not, a year of this, my wife got tired of hearing that. And so one night, she's out with some of her friends. They're having dinner together. And she just decides, you know what? I'm going to take care of this myself. She said, girls, do you all know of a good plumber in the area? We've got this small leak under our sink. We need to get it taken care of. One by one, all the women said, you don't need to call a plumber. I'll send my husband over. He can take care of it. Right? So she comes home from dinner all excited. All excited. Y'all know where this is going, right? She comes in. She's beaming. She says, honey, I got great news. We don't need to call a plumber. It's not going to be that complicated. I told all the girls, their husbands are going to come over next week. They're going to fix it for you. How do you think I reacted? I was mad. I acted like she told them that I still sleep with my favorite stuffed animal at night or something like that, you know? I can't believe you told them that. Why would you tell them that? They're going to think I can't do anything now. Right? There's a sort of humility, a humiliation involved in that. Who's, who knows what I'm talking about? Right? Then, then there's this sense, this fear that I like, I'm in their, I'm in their debt now, right? They're going to come over here and do this for me. Next thing I know, they're going to be calling me up and asking them to help move or something. There's nothing worse than helping somebody move, by the way. I love you to death, but you're on your own when it comes to it. Y'all know what I'm talking about, though? And this posture of interdependence, the humility, right, that it takes to actually have these type of relationships, it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's very counterintuitive, particularly for us, because we live in a culture where one of our highest ideals, one of our highest values is independence. Man, we are convinced that somebody is strong, that somebody has it together, that somebody is mature when they're independent, when they don't need anybody for anything. That's our picture of strength. It's like Bear Grylls. I remember that show. But remember they drop them off in the middle of nowhere and have to survive? Oh, bear, never mind like the hundreds of people who are actually there. You just can't see him on camera, right? Make sure he doesn't die. But that's kind of our picture of strength, right? There's the Marlboro man, whatever. Cowboy off by himself. He's got all this taken care of. We are, we live in a culture, we are obsessed with independence. We think that is strength. It's like there's this trajectory people should be on, right? And if you are mature, you are growing in where you should be, then you should be growing in your independence. You don't need anybody for anything. 
I'll prove it to you. I need your participation with this, okay? I want you to fill in the blank. I'm gonna put something on the screen. I want you to fill in the blank for me, okay? Tim blank lives at home with his parents. What's the first word that popped in your head? Still, all right? Don't put the next one up yet. I want you to be brutally honest with me with this next one, okay? We're gonna suspend judgment. Just shout the first word that comes to mind. Ready? Put it up there. Tim is a blank. Loser. That's the one I heard. Golly. Is, I told you I was suspend judgment. I got to pray for you all, though. I heard loser and bum. Those are the two words I heard, like, right away. Never mind Tim is six years old, right? <laughs> Bunch of jerks. <laughs> We're obsessed with independence. We are so convinced of strength that the more independent somebody is, the less they need other people, then the healthier they are. But what if we got it all wrong? What if our independence is actually a cop-out? What if we're actually scared? What if the harder thing is to actually be in relationships where we receive grace, gifts from each other? What if that's what Jesus is pointing us to? You know, I think this obsession with independence, man, it shows up in so many unhealthy ways. It cripples our relationships on the one hand, but I think it shows up in so many unhealthy ways. Like, like think about when it comes time when, when we need help. We actually need help. And we refuse to ask for it because we're so afraid we're gonna appear weak. I, mean, I, I was reading not too long ago about the fact that, that the average marriage waits over six and a half years to ask for help from the time they realize they need it. That's troubling to me. Why? Why? I guarantee you the same stuff you're dealing with, we're all dealing with it. You're no worse than, than anybody else. What would happen if, if earlier they reached out for help? And then when they do reach out to help, you know what they do? They don't talk to the people around them. They go as far away from that as possible because they don't want them to know something's wrong. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And we have a hard time asking for help. I mean, even, you can even hear it in our language, like when we do actually ask for help, right? It's like we try to weave in 1,500 apologies before we actually get to the ask. It's like, listen, I don't want to bother you. I, I know you're super busy. I don't want to trouble you with this little small thing, right? Or, or you, you can say no, right? Don't feel like you have to say yes to this, but, but would you? There's like this internal shrinking and shriveling of the soul <laughs> involved in simply asking someone, for help, all because we're infatuated with independence. We think it's a strength, and I'm beginning to wonder, what if it's actually a weakness? Now, I think some independence is a good thing, right? I mean, taking ownership of your life and making decisions, right, and taking ownership of that, that's great, that's healthy. But when it comes to receiving grace in our life, it can become a roadblock, a barrier, I think, to experience the reality, the presence of God in our lives. And one of the ways, other ways it shows up in my life is I have this tendency to, like, keep track of who's done what for me, Right, so somebody does something nice for you and immediately I think, man, I gotta, I gotta pay him back even bigger than that. It's really bad when you have kids and start going to birthday parties. And you're laughing, you know what I'm talking about. It's like you, you gotta buy him a present, but the first thing you think about, hold on, what'd they buy our kid at his birthday party? How much did they spend on that? Because I gotta spend at least that much, if not more. And so we can't even really enjoy a gift that comes our way without it being smothered with this sense of obligation. That we gotta pay it back. And we wonder why God feels so far away. You see, Jesus calls us away from all of this. And he invites us into the type of community of interdependence, of where we can ask and seek and knock, where we can lean on one another 
to have and to be and to do way more than we ever could on our own. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Now, if you're anything like me, immediately I start thinking of so-and-so. <laughs> start thinking of that, those people in my life I know who will take advantage of this. Like some of you haven't been able to listen to any of this because you immediately thought of that one person you've bailed out over and over and over and over again. So for you, it's like if you had your own translation of this passage, it'd go something like, ask, seek, and knock. Unless it's so-and-so, then just tell them to get lost, right? Now here's, here's the wonderful thing about the ask, the, the discipline of asking, is that the other person can always say what? No. In fact, why don't we try saying that together? You ready? On the count of three, let's say no. One, two, three. No. Some of you are like, mm-mm. it's halfway there. It's two letters. You'll get there. Okay, just keep practicing. You know, sometimes the most loving, interdependent thing we can do for someone else is say no. Say no. And if we got really honest with ourselves, sometimes the reason why we keep saying yes, it's really not for their good. It's because we, we're trying to gratify some sense of codependence in us. We don't want to feel the discomfort of telling them no. And so we just keep saying yes. We tell ourselves it's about them, but it's really a weird form of self-preservation. That's a whole other sermon series maybe though, (laughs) boundaries. All that was interesting to me though, is that in this teaching, Jesus, he gives no restrictions. He gives no disclaimers or conditions about this teaching. He just simply tells us, hey, when it comes to your relationships with one another, if you're really grounded, and this beautiful connection with God, here's what I want you to do. Just be there for each other. Ask for help when you need it. There's no disclaimers there. It's because he does not want us to miss the absolute gift this is to our relationships. And it is a gift. The ask is a gift. I see this every time I preach. Whenever I share a story about, you know, the joys and the struggles of raising three kids under the age of five, hmm. I have so many people come up to me afterwards and say, hey, you know what? We'd love to help. Can we watch the kids for you sometime? I mean, all the time. Some some of the young parents are like, can you share some of their names? I'll give them to you. Come talk to me afterwards, right? Spread it out. But it's so funny to me. It's like, like, you know what? We all really want to be asked. We want to be invited in to other people's lives. I mean, think about it. If if you had a friend who's in the middle of a crisis, it's the middle of the night. It's like two o'clock in the morning. They've got a crisis. Something big is going on. But they're sitting on the edge of their bed with their phone in their hand, wrestling with, do I call and wake them up? What would you want them to do? Call. Am I right? Then why is it so hard for us to do that? I mean, I've had some of you make some really lovely offers about, you know, some of you have awesome property on the lake or you got pools or whatever. You say, we'd love for you to come over and use it anytime you want. You know how hard that is for me to take you up on that offer? Why? Why is it in, like, like that in us? I mean, you probably have a similar thing. Somebody's offered to do something for you, to be there for you. They want to give something to you, but you can't receive it. Why? It's a spiritual discipline. I mean, at the heart of, our, heart of our faith is this idea of grace. You know what grace means? Gift. God's unmerited, undeserved gift. We can't earn it, deserve it, achieve it, accomplish it. It's ours, which means the healthiest posture for us to live in is one of acceptance where we embrace it. And so I would argue that one of the gifts of community of one another is this continual practice of giving and receiving grace. That's where the rubber meets the road. And so I've found, you know, here's, here's, here's what I think is really interesting in this passage. Something else I don't want us to miss. 
But in verse 9, Jesus says this, Which of you, if your child asks for bread, will give them a stone? Or if they ask for a fish, will give them a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Here's where it gets a little fuzzy. Right, because up to this point, it seems like Jesus is talking about our relationships with one another. Now all of a sudden, he goes back into talking about our relationship with God. Right? And then he ends the passage by saying, and all this, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Then we're back to talking about our relationships with one another. It's like, wait a minute. Which one are you talking about, Jesus? Are you talking about our relationship with God or are you talking about how we interact with each other? The temptation is to think it has to be either or. When in fact, it's both and. See, Jesus is blurring the lines between our connection with God and our relationships with each other. And this sort of idea is all over the place in the scriptures. And here's a really clear one from 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. It says, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoa. It's a nice subtle way of putting it. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Turns out, quite simply, that our relationship with God and our relationship with each other are not mutually exclusive. They're interdependent. They're interconnected. So don't give me this stuff of, I don't need the church. I don't need small groups. I can just go read my Bible by myself. Good luck with that. More than likely, you're kind of a butthead. <laughs> this is supposed to interact. It's supposed to shape and change the way we interact with other people. If that's not happening, then I'm not sure we're doing it right. Are you with me? These two things are not mutually exclusive. They're interdependent. This is where the rubber meets the road. And so for me, one of the things, this is one of the ways this has practically showed up in my life is, is even when I feel this way, you know, sometimes it feels like God isn't around. You start asking that question, where is God? You know what I'm talking about? Either some sort of frustration, like there's a need that you need met and it's not getting met. Or there's some, something wreaking havoc up here in your brain, an insecurity. Something's got you messed up, right? You start asking that question, where is God? You begin to wonder if this Jesus thing is for real. When I'm in that place, I've found there's a better question to ask than where is God? You know what it is? Where am I? Where am I? Particularly in relation to other followers of Jesus. Because one of the things I've discovered is, is that God chooses to work through people. You know, God wants to provide for that need, bring that change in your life, it's through someone else. It's not gonna happen from you sitting in a room waiting for God to drop it in your lap. It's gonna come through another human being. It's how God works. He's incarnational. The word needs flesh and blood. It's the bottom line. It's how it works. And so you've been wondering, where is God? Ask yourself, but where am I? Particularly in relation to other followers of Jesus. Because when we isolate ourselves from that, when we cut ourselves from that, we are simultaneously separating ourselves from the very place, the very way in which God wants to work in our lives. So what, what can we depend on one another for? Let's go back to Matthew 7. Those three words, I love them. Ask, seek, and knock. I hear that word ask. Sometimes what I think of is, you know what we need from one another? We need something really tangible, really practical. There's something in our life we don't have that we need. And guess who's gonna be the, be the way God provides for us? Someone else. I mean, James is such a practical book. And in chapter two, James says this, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Prayer is super important. In fact, it's essential. But sometimes what people need and what we have to allow people to be is an answer to prayer. 
It's an answer to prayer. They may be the one God wants to use to provide for that need. Let them say thank you. Embrace it. It's a gift from God. I hear that word seek. And I think about all the times in my life when I felt lost. And you're kind of wrestling with, man, what's true? What's really going on here? And oftentimes what we need from the community is to come alongside of us in those moments to remind us of what's true about us, who God really is. I love what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says. It says, encourage one another and build each other up. That word encourage in the Greek is this word periklesis. And it, and it actually comes from the, from the sports world in the ancient world. It was, a paraclete was, was an encourager, but they were somebody who would, during a marathon, during a long-distance race, they would stay close to a runner. They had a runner that they were identified with, and they would sometimes travel on horseback or whatever, but they would stay close to that runner. And when that runner looked like they were about to give up, that paraclete would actually come next to them, run up next to them, and say, hey, you only got this much further to go. You're almost there. Don't quit now. I don't know about you, but I need that in my life from time to time. I need people who are going to remind me of who I really am, what's true about me the calling God's placed on my life. That third word, knock. When I hear that, I think of a door. I think of new opportunities, new directions. Often what we need from one another is a good kick in the rear because it's so easy to get caught up in just paying the bills, making money, trying to get by, trying to keep up when God has invited us to actually use our resources, our gifts, our money, our time, our talent to make the world a better place. What's that look like in your life? What I need are people around me who are gonna challenge me towards bigger God dreams, who are gonna push me towards living sacrificially. Hebrews chapter 10 says it like this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Do you have people in your life who are doing that? Challenging you to use what you have to make the world a better place. And all of this, my question is simple. Do you have that? Do you have this type of community? I'm not just talking about friends you have fun with. Those are, that's great to have. But do you have people who are going to be willing to step into this type of relationship with you? Because I've found that it's rare. It's one of the reasons why we're so committed to small groups here. Let me just say it. My goal is for every single person who calls Mount Horeb home to have this. To have a community of people who are going to fight for their marriage, even when that means they got to say hard things to that person who are gonna be there to help raise their kids, who are gonna help people transition to taking care of their own parents. That's not easy, is it? And we're gonna be there for each other in all of these different ways. That's what small groups are all about. And if you're not in one, here it is. Here's your action step. Get in one. Get in one. What's your excuse? We've worked really hard to make that as easy as possible. Easiest way, Wednesday night, I'd love to see you up in the chapel, 6.15. We started last week, One Life. We had a great turnout, a bunch of beautiful people in there. Some good groups are gonna form out of this. It's essentially a six-week class, puts you in the same place at the same time who are look, people, with other people who are looking for this. And we help get you started off on the right foot. 6.15, up in the chapel. If you can't make Wednesday nights work, you're not off the hook, by the way. Your next step, go online for me. Go to the church website, adult ministry page. You can fill out a survey for us. This survey tells us a bit about who you are, the kind of life stage you're in, what you're looking for. Once we get that survey, we're gonna be in touch and we're gonna help you take the next step. If you're in a small group already, do me a favor. Take it seriously. Don't just go through the motions. Invest, lean into it. Because I believe that when we move closer to God, God meets us in a real way. Can I get an amen on that? Let's pray. 
Jesus, thank you so much for the gift that we have in each other. I pray that right now you make it very clear what it is that we need to do. Then give us the courage to carry it out. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.